Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. I'm Shonda Rhimes, and we're bringing you Dominant Stories, created by Shondaland Audio in partnership with the Dove Self-Esteem Project. I am exactly the way you are when you're in the fetal position crying and you can't figure out why. <laughs> I am schlepping through the city, feeling lost and alone half the time, and, and doing the best I can. Right. I relate to people who are just doing the best they can, and I would only like to have them think of me as the same way because I really feel like we're all the same that way. Hey, everybody, I'm Jess Wiener, and this is Dominant Stories. Dominant Stories are those stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. They can be about our worth or our value, our body image, beauty. That could sound like, I'm not good enough. I'm too old to start something new. I don't deserve this. When we don't challenge those stories, they can end up shaping the direction of our lives. They say that you often teach what you most need to learn. And in this case, I think that's true. I've been exploring and teaching around the concept of dominant stories for a while now because I have a lot of those voices. And no matter what level of success I achieve or what my relationship statuses are, those voices are still there. So I'm trying to find a way to make peace with those voices, to unpack them. And one of the ways that I find that's really effective is just talking to people. These thoughts, these dominant stories, they really thrive in secrecy and in shame. So one of the greatest tools we have is the art of conversation. And these conversations on this show are going to be vulnerable, real, and actionable. So in thinking about how to kick off this, our very first episode, I knew that I wanted to be in conversation with one of the most talented, sweet, kind, and dear friends that I have. I am talking about the one and the only Sarah Bareilles. You probably know and love Sarah's incredible work in the world, whether you've come to love her through Love Song, the hit song that she wrote in 2007. She's done incredible work from Little Voice on Apple Plus TV to Girls 5 Eva on Peacock. And of course, for all of my Broadway aficionados out there, she wrote the music and lyrics for Waitress. And a lot of what Sarah does inspires us and lifts us up, but there is a truth behind her process and her relationship to creativity that I knew that I wanted us to talk about a little bit more on this show. I think we really bonded talking about how creativity manifests in our life, how it is this gorgeous opportunity to know ourselves in the world, but also to be known by the world. Being seen and heard and understood is something I'm passionate about. It is something she is passionate about. So I cannot wait for you to hear this conversation with Sarah Bareilles. And of course, if you like the show, let me know what you think by subscribing, by writing a review, wherever you listen. I can't wait to dig in. Well, hi, friend. Hi, friend. (laughs) So as I was thinking about this conversation with you today and all of the things that I wonder about around 
making art and being creative and taking care of ourselves in the world, especially given the world that we're currently living in. Mm-hmm. You know, you and I had a chance to talk last year, um, so in 2020, as worlds were shifting quite a bit and we mm-hmm. were all sort of reckoning with what this means for our output in the world. And right. and it's almost like a little over a year later and I was thinking about the role of creativity during this time and, and where it saves us and where it stalls us and um, – First, I guess I was really thinking about going in the way, way back machine to little Sarah. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. like, Uh did you think about yourself as a creative kid? Like, were you aware of your love of telling a story or being creative or like making things when you were a little girl? I wonder if I was really, I wonder if kids are aware of themselves that way. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, what is partially so magical about that age and why people love being around kids because there is it's like you haven't learned to be self-conscious at all in those ways or you're not measuring yourself against the rest of the world yet yeah so I don't know if I had a great awareness of it but when I look back I clearly was someone who had a big imagination not only just by myself, but like that was how my friends and I played. We made movies. We created these mm-hmm. crazy stories. I mean, I lived on five acres of redwood forest. So it was, I would play with my cousins and we would leave in the morning and come home at night. And we were, we yep. were, had gone on grand adventures and we had time traveled and we had found dinosaur bones. <laughs> but I don't remember ever feeling. Like I, I knew what that was really, I think in context Mm -hmm. of anything I do now. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) That's what I was thinking about is that moment of awareness that we get around the specialty of creativity. Cause I remember same, like I would spend mostly playing with my sister and we would make up stories all day long and but I do remember at some point when kids start to break off and and people give you labels for the things that you're quote unquote good at, right? When she becomes the athlete mm. or he becomes the math superstar or whatever. I remember then I became height, more heightened and aware of where I should fit in. Yeah. Did it feel like that for you? I think it had to do with my singing voice. That was the first thing that was like sort of the marker and what I got. I got validated for, I suppose. And it's the thing that made me special. Mm. I think what was interesting in reflection on it now is that I was a really self-conscious kid. I got teased a lot in elementary school. It was a really uncomfortable time of always feeling like, I mean, it was a t- I went to Catholic school. I went to, it was a really small class. And it was mm-hmm. almost like I couldn't trust that anyone was quite my friend because they would turn on a time. <laughs> I was like, they'd be nice yes. to me one minute and then they turn on a dime. That's just sort of the nature of the little beasts that go <laughs> that age. Yes. There was a lot of self-consciousness and, and a lot mm-hmm. of self-loathing and, and body image issues that started at that age for me. But then I went to public school in eighth grade. And I sang at like a rally. I sang either the national anthem or I sang like in a talent show or something like that. And I got to feel shiny and it was Mm. about my voice and they didn't have my whole history attached to me. So I went to public school and was like, 
oh, I'm just a normal kid that's just like going to school and nobody's making fun of me all day. And this is kind of amazing. Mm. But a few years later in high school, the first time I ever shared an original composition, that went really poorly. And so I think for me, where there was a real break there and it was like, oh, I'm, I'm good as a singer, not good as a writer. And so I would share the singing, but I wouldn't share the writing for many years. And it wasn't until I was halfway through college before I would ever play anything for anybody again. Isn't that interesting? Like the stories we, but this is the whole point, right? The stories that we get told about ourselves that then become our own internal voice, right? So you have a rough experience being received Mm -hmm. in this creative output. And then the immediate story is like, I'm not good at writing and I'm not going to show the world that. It's so funny. I was thinking about in fourth grade, my, my light switch went on. I had or fifth grade, actually, Mrs. Stetson was my teacher. And I'll remember she gave me like an extracurricular assignment to to like write a story and I could read it during lunchtime to the kids. And I don't know why she picked me to do that or what that was about. But I remember, yeah, it was so sweet. And I did it. And I remember physically feeling the love of being in front of people when they connected to my story and they laughed. And I, I remember like electricity in my body, even at, at 10 years old, I could remember that moment. And I'm curious when you sang that national anthem or when you first used your voice, was there a somatic experience? Do you remember what happened for you in your body? Were you conscious of that? I mean, in my mind at this moment, I remember it as heat. Mm. I think I felt flushed. I felt excited. <laughs> it almost felt a tiny bit dangerous too. It was like the, thr- it, the thrill of having to step up to that moment and meet the moment was intoxicating. And I think Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, you get bit by the bug. And I did community theater as well, which was in my little town, such a a tremendous gift and such a safe, safe space because Mm. as theater usually is, I can't say that it always, always is for everyone, but there really is such a, a deep devotion to inclusivity and, Yes. Letting people like bring your weird with you kind of thing is like it's (laughs) celebrated. So I really feel like I got to enjoy being in front of people and singing and getting I got the role as Fern in Charlotte's Web and got to sing my solo and (laughs) which was about pork and it was I love that. You know, it's an interesting journey when we're younger. I feel like we collect a lot of stories about ourselves, but we also, for me, and you know, we look out at the world to see where you fit. And I love that you talked about sort of the theater community as a place where a lot of folks who don't feel like they fit can fit and do Mm -hmm. fit. And then you become this band of storytellers, like, you know, sharing all of that energy and that love and that passion. Because I think about, you know, you as a little girl being bullied in elementary school, I had the same. I mean, I was a girl with the last name of Wiener. So like I was pretty much done for in yeah. in school and picked on for image issues. And, and then it becomes fuel in a way, I think, yeah. if you become aware of your journey and you can kind of challenge it and change it. But for me, that heat that you talk about, like when you say to rise to meet the moment, sometimes when you're rising to meet the moment of a public performance, is there, do you have to battle voices that come up that start telling you something like, you don't deserve to be here? Or like, why is this happening? Like, do those voices pop up and do you still have those voices? Oh yeah, absolutely. There's a reason imposter syndrome runs rampant among yeah. 
even the most successful people. It's just, and I imagine you're right to like investigate when these seeds get planted. Mm-hmm. I just feel like somehow inside my own life, I'm going to get tapped on the shoulder and be like, mm, yeah, you're not. You you snuck through for a little while, but now you got to (laughs) go. But yes, I mean, every big event I can ever think of, it's a little bit like stepping on the roller coaster. And and it's like, I I bought this book one time because I I deal with a lot of anxiety and depression. It is like the churning that will be with me forever and ever. Amen. Mm -hmm. And I bought this book one time on tour called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. And to be honest, I was like embarrassed to read it in public because I'm like, everyone knows what's going on inside me. <laughs> like, it's like the fact that I have this beautiful book by John Kabat-Zinn. I, I'm a big John Kabat-Zinn fan. And yeah. it's called Full Catastrophe Living. And I'm like, that's the book I'm reading. It. <laughs> it's like, you're a mess. <laughs> no secrets here, folks. <laughs> but I bought this book called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. It's like the point is not to rid yourself of the voices. It's just like, do you let them be in the driver's seat or not? They're going to be there. They are going to come back. And so really cultivating that part of yourself that can hold space and know that two things can be true at the same time. There can be these wild assholes in my mind telling (laughs) me I don't belong here and I can still choose to belong here. Yes. I talk about having, like inviting those stories in to have a seat at the table because for me, these dominant stories have like, it's not binary. I don't think they ever go away. I think we just learn better ways to navigate through them and why I wanted to, you know, chat with folks too who I think have achieved a kind of experience that I think a lot of people think, oh, well, once I get here, once I'm successful in my work or once I'm successful in a relationship or once I fill in the blank, then I won't have any of these feelings. And that's, I think, a a disservice for for us on a journey because I think everybody, like you said, and the most creative people in the world still struggle with imposter syndrome. Oh, completely. I don't know if we can hear that enough. I think it's reassuring. I do too. I mean, I I think about, you know, waitress is a huge part of my life, of course. And uh, I mean, going through that entire process, I was like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do this. And I'm just going to keep putting one foot in front of the other and trusting my collaborators and knowing that like, I, out of sheer will of moving forward, I will just keep going. There was no sense of like, yeah, man, I got this figured out. There just wasn't <laughs> right. that. That was not a part of that process. And in some ways, that was a, a large part of why that was such a rewarding process too. Mm. not to only stay in our safest spaces. Like um, I, I was in a show called I am in a show called Girls Five Eva. And last yeah! season we were, which I love so much. It's so good. <laughs> well, I just, I loved making the show so much. It, But I'm remembering I had a monologue and it's a comedy. It's not like I was giving this deep speech, but I had this <laughs> long monologue. My character was kind of losing her shit a little bit. And mm-hmm. I was so nervous. I felt like I didn't belong there at all. I was so out of my body and Renee Lee Scoldsbury, who is such a beautiful, beautiful soul and has become a very close friend. She was the one that had to give me the pep talk. She just like pulled me. Really? She's like, you listen to me here. <laughs> you belong here. 
You you take Aww. as much time as you need. You move from point A to point B, and we are all on this ride to support you in this moment. And don't you dare for one second apologize for how you got here or why you're here. It was like, wow. We can gift that to each other in moments, but yes. you know, here I am. I'm in this show and I'm like, I don't belong here. (laughs) Like it doesn't go away. Isn't that incredible? It does. And the power of speaking to that voice, like, or having a friend speak to that voice is Mm -hmm. so insanely awesome because sometimes we don't have the words and she saw that she saw through that and she got to advocate for you. What a delight for me. That's the deliciously dangerous part of creativity as well. I think it brings us to a brink if we're going to explore an area that is unchartered. And I think that's part of our hero Shiro's journey as creatives, right, is to enter into that space. But, you know, perfection is the enemy of the good. And I am definitely like had been the president of the perfection fan club growing up and still still struggle with that. And I'm curious what your relationship is with perfectionism. Oh gosh, it's um, complicated. Yeah. It's delicate, the balance between having high expectations or high standards or wanting something to be Mm -hmm. its best. And then it's really easy to get lost in sort of the ego of that too. Yeah. For me, you're sort of looking for that. There's like a little bell that rings when it's truthful, when it speaks to something that has an element of vulnerability to it. It's mostly about honesty. Yeah. My, my deepest intention is, is authenticity, but I think, you know, getting something right. I don't know. It's hard for me. It's hard in my relationship. Joe and I talk about that. My partner, Joe and I talk about that a lot. I have a real allergy to feeling like I did it wrong or like I got Mm. something wrong or I, yep. Yeah, I'm work- I don't have any good advice about that. I'm just, I just <laughs> I have to work on softening my reaction to that because I think it's of course we're going to get it wrong sometimes. But in terms of art, I think there is no right way. Ultimately, agreed. I think it's also there's two ways I've been looking at tools for perfectionism. One is about inviting joy in because mm. I so much forget to actually enjoy any of these processes. It's such a gift to be able to like move somebody or create and collaborate with somebody or like I try to focus on joy and tiny things so that I almost like refuel with that. And compassion has been my other tool because the perfectionism will like beat me to a pulp. I mean, Mm -hmm. I will go from feeling so grand to feeling so tiny. For me, that's like my my trauma response to not being perfect or not getting it right is like I immediately decimate myself so that somebody else can't decimate me. Totally. I mean, my gosh, we are are experts at making ourselves feel small. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it happened happened yesterday. I, I was with a good friend and I was just telling her about my I haven't been writing a lot and my this conversation about creativity it's interesting it's coming up today because I haven't written a lot outside of for an assignment it's become more of my of my process yeah. has been more assignment based and that was that's a whole new chapter in my life like doing things mm. to respond to a prompt or to fit into this scene of a musical or to be a part of this animated thing or whatever it is And I think there's a part of me and my relationship to what I consider my muse 
that has mm-hmm. suffered from that a little bit where there's like, oh, the, the plant needs a little watering. But I was telling her about this and she's like, can I just tell you, you're being awfully hard on yourself. <laughs> like you're starting in a Broadway show. You're about to start shooting this other thing. There's like all kinds of shit going on, working on another animated product. Wow. And she's like, you're, you're like getting upset with yourself for not doing more. And it was mm. a nice light bulb moment where that compassionate voice has not been very present for me. I'm really good at making myself feel like I'm not doing enough. Yeah. I, I Well, first of all, I love that you've got these beautiful voices around you who can reflect back to you. Amazing friends. Friendship is a massive bomb for, for being able to soothe these like kind of weary perfectionistic voices. Well, it feels like a great time to take a little break. We're going to be right back. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad, is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor, and meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. And we're back with this awesome conversation. The part that you said that's really like resonating for me is like the assignment-based performing or like, and I have also felt very similarly, like I get so caught up in like work for my clients or in producing something for somebody else that I forget how to pull for myself and just to explore. And I heard you say your your muse. Can we talk about that relationship for a second? Like how do you describe your muse or what are they? What does it sound like? What do you like what's your relationship like with that? Cuz I'm so I'm so curious. I mean, songwriting for me is like worship. I am at the altar of the muse, the gods of music, whatever that is. Mm. I've always felt like songwriting is my direct relationship with God. That's why I had a lot of trouble initially in finding even the sort of space or capacity for collaboration because it felt so private. It was like offensive to me that someone would, as co-writers get together, it's not, it's not always a religious experience. It's just like, (laughs) sometimes they're just making things and there's nothing wrong with that. For me, it was traumatic. It was just like, you're doing surgery without anesthesia. Like, I don't know. I don't know what you think you're doing, but this is not how you make music. And I have since sort of learned the the joys and the possibilities of, of collaboration. But for me, the, the relationship to the muse is just, I got the honor of being a vessel that for whatever yeah. reason, when I came, when I got my turn 
on the rock mm-hmm. here, <laughs> I got to have a voice and the capacity to tell stories with song. And that is, isn't something I like gave to myself. It came in my suitcase. And so I feel mm. really, I'm very reverent about honoring that. Mm. I've definitely lived my life in parts of it where I have stuffed things into my physical vessel so that I wouldn't feel some yeah. of the gift that I was afraid of being, you know, rejected or ostracized by what I wanted to experience and express in the world. And so I numbed a mm. lot of that out. And now I think like when you talk about the collaboration with a partner, there's so much vulnerability to create in partnership. That's actually what I miss about the theater so much was the Mm. vulnerability of all of us together and like the risk of sucking, you know, as a group. I miss sucking at dress rehearsal, like just (laughs) it going so bad. You know what I mean? Or like things going horribly awry and you're like, oh, my God, we're never going to make it. This is never going to work. And then, the you know, it happens. The magic happens. The magic always happens. It's just incredible. It's the greatest team sport. It's so, that's what I love about it too. It is a shared experience and it doesn't matter if you're the star of the show or whatever. It, It doesn't happen without each other up there. It just doesn't. No. And it doesn't happen without a bump and it going awry. Like mm-hmm. it's not that perfect journey. And I, I like so the process like of shaping, of editing, but I find like when I'm most scared or I'm most unsure mm-hmm. that it's going to resonate is typically the thing that resonates the most with people because I feel like it brings me to the brink of like my own comfort. Like then I know I'm onto something when it scares me a little bit. It makes me think of, there's a song from Waitress called She Used to Be Mine. And mm-hmm. it, I, I was playing it in concert before it was ever a part of the show. I mean, I'd written it for the show and I was sharing with my audiences. I was like, I'm working on this project. This is a song from it. But I remember feeling incredibly self-conscious because there's a lyric where she actually says the word pie, where she's like, she's all of this mixed up and baked in a beautiful pie. Mm-hmm. And as just a pop artist out on a concert <laughs> circuit, I'm like playing those words and I'm like, am I embarrassed? Is that what's coming? But then get to the end of the song and it's like clearly something about that song resonates for people on a really deep level. But I remember the first time I played it, I was like very self-conscious about it. And mm. it's just a reminder to keep just keep pushing into those places. It is so true. Well, you know, remember I texted you that one day and I was like, I'm listening to all your music while I'm writing these new things that scare me. So that song was on repeat for me. That song for me, it unlocks the little, that little voice inside of me, which is another thing that you wrote about, right? So, and I kept listening to it because that's who I was trying to reach, the newer version of me. Um, I was going to ask you, speaking of little voice, which is also an incredible I loved that story and and the music in that show. When you were – I keep going back to childhood just for that unfettered before you were in the industry yeah. time. But, like, what were the stories that little Sarah wanted to tell, like high school, college? Like, before you flip into industry mode, when you weren't doing this professionally, did you have a – were there stories that you wanted to tell even since you were a little person on this planet? <laughs> I think I was always enamored with the sort of finding your voice story, Mm -hmm. even in films and in television and stuff like anything that had a young girl for me, which is who I identified 
the most closely with seeing a young girl find courage and strength, discovering the ability to sort of stand up for themselves was always something that really resonated. Like the secret garden was a story that I loved. Mm. And that was the first musical I ever saw, like a big musical. I saw it in San Francisco on tour and the power of a little girl because she's a, she's a truth teller, even though she's a brat and she's a pain in the ass, but she's a truth teller ultimately is what is happening. And the magic that becomes unlocked because she is unwilling to give up on this path. Mm. And I think that that was something that, and still very much resonates with me. Those are the stories I'm the most interested in telling. Gosh, friends, same. And actually, I wonder sometimes if my desire, because I always was very drawn to the underdog, the girl discovering against all odds how amazing she is in a world that didn't think she was. And I actually think a lot of that was a response to the bullying that I experienced as well when I was younger, because I would always fantasize when I was sitting in like my classroom with kids that were being jerks. I've never said this out loud. This is going to be mortifying, but I'm going to say it anyway, because I love you. I would sit in this classroom and I would fantasize my celebrity crushes, which by the way, at the time was I loved like sitcom stars, so, like Ricky Schroeder, Kirk Cameron. He's canceled for me. But anyway. Yeah, understood. <laughs> but I would imagine the people that I love from TV coming into the classroom and being like, you're awesome. You. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I had those same fantasies. Where <laughs> they would like say to the mean girl, you're a bitch. I love her. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it was yes. Like, <laughs> I think now the difference in my life's work is I'm trying to rescue myself. I'm trying to come into that room myself and be like, enough. And now those voices are not just from outside people. They they became my internal voices. And that's yeah. a big part of my work's journey is like, how do I have a conversation now where I can, you know, advocate and love myself? I miss some of that purity in in the journey of of these stories. I do too. Oh, it's so sweet to revisit like all these because it's the same. I think when I really think about those fixations on love and, and even romance at such a young age, when you don't really have a deep understanding, it's about feeling special. You just want to feel That's seen right. and feel special and feel, um, Chosen. I wanted yes, to be chosen. Totally. Totally. I wanted to be somebody's special person. And I think, and I mean, a lot of women, girls who have grown up in a traditional societal upbringing around gender roles, like that's also a part that's been expressed for us, right? Like that was the way I derived value was by being yeah. chosen by somebody else. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, and that's actually an interesting kind of question now around like the fame and the world that you're in and the the unlock that you get as a creative artist when you achieve a level of success and you and more people know you, more people choose you. I'm curious like what that has felt like for you internally as you've climbed, like how you've traversed the growth of fame and celebrity. And do you even think about it like that? Sure. I mean, I, I definitely think about it I was a little older. I was in my late twenties when I when my first record came out, and so thankfully, I was a little more set in who I knew myself to be when I 
encountered the industry for the first time. I think had I been younger and even more impressionable and less sure of who Sarah really is, yeah, I would have had a much harder time. But I think I've always really related to the underdog story and I never had, there was no like rocket ship for me. It was always mm. a real slow burn. Even if it felt like from the outside in, it looked like, wow, this like took off. It really didn't, not from the inside. I played hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of shows before anything ever mm -hmm. happened. And so there was this relationship to the work. And when I think about young artists now, and when people ask advice, my advice is always like, go play, go play, go play, go play. It is mm -hmm. not about the discovery of the next best hook that's going to be the number one song on whatever. If you really want a relationship to your creativity and to an artistic life, if that is something that is important to you, you have some work to do. It takes time to discover and to unearth what your artistry is all about. And it doesn't happen overnight. It is not a fast process. It is a slow burn. Yeah. And I think that I was very fortunate that my first record brought a lot of crazy success and travel and tours and mm -hmm. stuff that nobody, including my record label, was anticipating. <laughs> like, <laughs> we were all betting against me. Let's, let's be honest. But I, I, fame, I had a lot of trepidation about fame. I had a lot of real fear about fame because I always mm -hmm. felt like I don't want to be famous. I want to be an artist who makes things. I don't look at the lifestyle of someone that can't leave their house without people following them. That is not for me. I don't want it. I don't mm. never coveted that. No, thank you. It's, it looks like a prison to me. And I'm a claustrophobic person anyway. So it's like the idea that there would be limitations on how I can move through the world makes me very, very uncomfortable. Mm. So I've been so fortunate in that way where like I don't have trouble moving through the world, but I get to make things I love. Fame I, is smoke and mirrors. It is smoke yeah. and mirrors. And so I think really rooting in the humanity of the people you make things with, why are you making the thing you're making? For me, it's just about getting really right with mm. what are you in alignment about. Don't you think our relationship, though, with fame or our thinking about celebrity has shifted so much with social media? Because I also imagine now, like, when you talk about it being a slow burn, you know, there's a generation growing up where, like, that slow burn doesn't exist. You post there's a no video and it's viral yeah. tomorrow. There's no such thing. Yeah. There's an expectation. That yeah. I, I put this work out in the world and I should be famous tomorrow. But there's also an expectation that fame somehow is going to feed all those parts of you that feel empty and hollow. Right. Well, and then I always ask people, like, what does that mean to you to be famous? Because people will say, I want to be famous. Mm -hmm. What does that mean to you? Does it mean money? Because I think it's just about money and recognition, which again, yep. I mean – Money is complicated. I mean, it's it it is helpful in a lot of yes. in a lot of wonderful ways, but it also comes with a lot of complications too. And then being, you know, having people know who you are. Well, 
That's complicated too. It's, compli- it's well, all complicated. I, it yeah. is all complicated, but that's why I want us to examine those those same questions about your relationship with your art and your trajectory in that way. Because I can imagine there might be people listening. Because I think like I would probably have been thinking this a while ago without some of the life experience I had, which is like, well, if you don't want to be like super, super famous, then like what are you going for, right? Because always I felt like the trajectory was – icon level, right? Like, you know, you can't leave your house kind of fame. I don't know if we thought about like, what is it that I want then, right? And I love that you said two things that I heard was like freedom and flexibility to move in the world and the freedom and opportunity to make the things that you want to make. But does, does your relationship and understanding now of fame and celebrity, does it shift what your goals are? Yeah, I think the times that I have gotten close to people who really exist on that sort of stratosphere there's nothing there for me personally there might be something there for someone else but it's not right I don't want that life yeah I see a tremendous amount of overwhelm people get so they put so much on you as a public figure I mean I I experienced that to a very small degree yeah and sometimes it's overwhelming that someone has given me an extraordinary amount of power in their lives. And it's a little bit like, I actually can't meet that. <laughs> like, I'm just, right. I'm a mess. I don't, I don't right. know, like <laughs> truly a mess. Right. <laughs> yeah. You're going to want to rethink that. <laughs> you have to pick somebody else. <laughs> yeah. But you know what I, what I do appreciate, and I was thinking about this too with you, like you've established such an authentic rapport with your fans and the people who admire your work. Was that thought out by you to share some of the inner workings of your life more publicly so that there's almost a protection built in, quite frankly, of like, listen, I'm going to share more about who I am so you stop building an unrealistic expectation about me? Or was it like, also just, did you need to do it because that's your truth? Truly, and this is, I, I am to a fault someone who like, I have a real allergy to inauthenticity and it's not it's not cute all the time it's like I'm the person who's like saying the thing that's like a little bit it's like do you have tact like are you not it's like, I don't really have a poker face and I'm I'm not interested in projecting any kind of image of something I'm not I, I just don't mm-hmm. have I don't want the pressure of living up to that kind of an expectation so I would rather remind people that like I am exactly the way you are when you're in the fetal position crying and you can't figure out why Mm -hmm. I am schlepping through the city, feeling lost and alone half the time and, and doing the best I can. Right. I relate to people who are just doing the best they can. And I would only like to have them think of me as the same way because I really feel like we're all the same that way. Take a moment, reflect on what you've heard, and we'll be right back. Oh, 
summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? And meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Welcome back to Dominant Stories. Let's pick up right where we left off. One of the things that is awesome, actually, about, and I like this, about having professional success or having, is that it brings opportunities. And then really cool doors can open to meet awesome people or collaborate in certain ways. And But one of the things I've struggled with is saying no to opportunity when for so long those doors weren't open. And when they started to open for you and when you get asked to do a lot of things, as I imagine you do, how do you navigate your boundaries of self-care and protection and saying no, but also being really like, you know, excited about being chosen, being asked? Yeah, that's a hard part of the process. The first time it happened I got into a complete state of overwhelm and was just wrung out. Mm -hmm. I had said yes to everything. And I think when, especially when you're new in your career and you are getting opportunities for the first time, there is a part of you that does have to say yes. You have to go to these places for the first time. And then, but I think the mistake that I made was not quite picking up on my own signals that like, oh, I'm actually breaking down a little bit in this. Mm -hmm. I am too exhausted to meet the moment. We're in Paris and I can't leave the hotel room because I'm literally too physically exhausted to even go see the Eiffel Tower. Like, yeah. That's not the quality of experience. Why go? <laughs> you know, like, just right. save it for another time. <laughs> right. But I understand the fear of that it might not come again. Yes. But boundaries have been an incredible tool. Like, I don't think you can do this life successfully without boundaries. I think I still run into that problem. I put too much on my plate because I have this amazing privilege of wonderful projects that come to me and I don't want to say no to anything. Yep. But again, it's like the Eiffel Tower in Paris. I'm not going to see it because I can't. It's like we were talking about joy. There's no joy in doing things from a place of overwhelm. There's no joy there. So I don't want to do that, you know? Yeah, I was at, I was talking to my friend um Lavia Jai Jones and she was saying that she's got like a system of questions that she asks herself when opportunities come before her. She asks like five questions. And then she says if she says yes to 3 out of the 5, she'll do the experience. Oh, great. And I adapted it for myself. So I ask myself like, will this bring me joy? Does my soul align to this? Can I be of service in this situation? Does this help me financially? If that's also still a part of like, you know, motivation. Like, sure, I still live in this capitalistic world. And then the fifth one is, will I learn something new in this Mm. experience? And you realize like, oh, wow, no, it doesn't bring me joy. 
yes, it might bring me money, but nah, I don't know if I'm going to learn anything new. Like it starts to give you a, a roadmap of saying no, because saying no is very hard for me as a people pleaser. I'm sure it is. And especially with the amount of philanthropic requests that come through, there's so much being of service, but that has been a hard lesson for me as well as like, I have gotten to a place at times where it's like, I'm actually not even doing it from the right place anymore because I'm so overwhelmed or exhausted, or I'm just trying to get it off the list. And then you have to really ask yourself, is this how I want to show up in these places? I also think our capacity to say yes to things for me was impacted when I got into a relationship with my husband. My time availability and the priority around it shifted. He's my favorite person to spend time with. And I'm curious if that shifted for you as love has come into your life and you've been sharing that, you know, more publicly with folks. Did this relationship with Joe like alter a little bit about how you prioritized your space and giving yourself more time to enjoy love? Yeah, it's been, I think, because they become your favorite people and you're just like, it's so Mm -hmm. easy because it's built into the structure of your life that you're just around them. I have to continually come back to prioritizing. I'm someone who needs a lot of alone time. And as an artist, Mm -hmm. that's something that I have realized it's really important for my creative process for me to be actually physically alone. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard when you're like, Oh wait, you want to get pizza? (laughs) (laughs) And you're so cute. (laughs) Yeah. You're so cute. And you're so fun. And we laugh so much. And so we were actually just talking about that recently where it's like the nurturing of the creative self and the, everything has to be in balance, you know, and it knocks out of balance really easily. And you just, it's like the meditation phrase I come back to over and over again is just begin again. You just have to begin again. Yes. Try again to recalibrate and to, even things out and it will move off track again and you just come back and start over. I agree. That's the compassion piece, I think, and that begin again part. And I find it too with Felipe, my husband, he builds furniture and he's got his shop in our garage. And and then I have like a studio here and I have a little home office. And we talk about how when we're out of sync is oftentimes when we're not in our little places making things, whatever that yeah. means for us. Yeah. Because then when we come together, it's like we can turn those things off and then really be together. But I think it takes a certain maturity in a relationship to know for my own sanity and well-being and creativity, I need this time. And that has nothing to do with me not choosing you. Yes, totally. And on the flip side, growing up enough to not take it personally and be like, yes, I want you to be your fullest, most expanded, biggest, brightest self and yeah, take all the space you need. That was one of the things that Joe, very early in our relationship, it was very clear. There's nothing about him that wants to make me smaller, you know? Mm. So that's a nice bonus. That's a, honestly, that's an amazing thing. I remember having a conversation like that with Felipe when we first met and I said, you know, I want to live this big life and I want to do all these things. And does that intimidate you? Because that had been a story that I had in prior relationships, right? was either I was too much or I felt, it felt like I was too much or, and I remember his almost immediate response was like, why would I be intimidated? Like I'm secure in who I am. Like, that's awesome. That's inspiring. And I was like, what? Am I getting punked? Like, you know, and when we got married, we one of our vows that we pledged to was 
the preservation of self-love because without mm. us working on ourselves, we couldn't keep showing up to give to the other person. It's so true. Yeah. Has this relationship or this time in your life, this season in your life, has this taught you anything new about your lovability or your belief in your lovability to be loved and seen by somebody else? Like, I'm curious how that might have shifted any of those voices from long ago. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, this is my first real partnership, I think. Mm -hmm. And there is so much that is so terrifying about that to me. The choice to just stay is, mm-hmm. is a constant conversation because I'm real flighty and I'm like, it's overwhelming. I have to go. And so like <laughs> the choice that I make every day to just stay and because there is so much good here, mm-hmm. but being seen for real, for real is terrifying. And beautiful and liberating and complicated. One of the things that I love about Joe is that he's not pulling punches with me. I've got some real, so does he, he has real issues too, but like (laughs) I've got some real issues, but we are choosing to stay next to each other and like figure it out and shape shift a little bit for each other. And on behalf of the wholeness of our, our couple, Mm. That is a new experience about real, real connection. Conflict is sometimes a sign of intimacy. And oftentimes, if you're willing to stay, the ability and the interest in resolving disagreements and where we don't, we aren't in alignment is a part of the growth. And that has been so illuminating to me. But yeah, Joe, he has made me feel completely lovable and a reminder of like, oh, where are the places in myself where I'm not loving myself Bingo. as much as he does? I know. That was like so humbling. To see me through my partner's eyes is a real trip, is a real experience to be like, oh. Because sometimes, much like your friends that you were talking about earlier in the conversation, like Renee and your other friend who spoke beautiful words to you, back to you in that moment, like I found the intimacy of having that with this partner, the way he could see me at times when I was not seeing myself and love me through moments where I was being just God awful was also so humbling and so beautiful because I found that to be a real challenge to the stories in my head about yeah. what my worth was and and realizing that you're you're right, that the choosing to show up for yourself, for this partnership, for the learning, for me goes back like even full circle to what we're talking about, which is, you know, these beliefs that we have, the stories that we're told, like all of that is constant. Mm-hmm. And what also can be constant is we can love and be loved at the same time. Yeah. Yes. How has it been for your creativity in a relationship? Do different things inspire you because of some of the emotions that get unlocked? Uh, I think for me, it's a little bit of a logistical thing. I'm just used to creating in solitude. Yeah. I live with someone now. And so I don't have alone time in that same way. So I think I'm actually trying to figure out how to solve for that a little bit at the moment. It's not urgent necessarily, but it is something that has been kind of brewing and I just Mm -hmm. am kind of examining, oh, why am I not writing as much? And I think it's some of that is like, oh, I just like hanging out. And, And then some of it's just a little bit logistical. 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, I've had very similarly as well. Like I've, I get up very, very early now and I need those couple of hours before he wakes for me to sit with my creativity and call it in and have those moments. But as for people who are listening, who like, I love what you said before when you said you want to live a creative or artistic life. I'm curious if there is something that you have learned maybe of late about a way to balance your identity around creativity, right? Because I think sometimes creative people, if they're not producing all the time, we know that we're used to hustling for our worth and like we've got to be productive. Is there a piece of advice or an insight that you have that you want to give to people? Like something that you've learned that has helped you through those rockier moments around your identity as as a creative person Mm -hmm. while being human? Yeah. I mean, what I feel compelled to say is that I find it helpful to think of it as a relationship. It is a relationship that you cultivate, nurture, tend to. It will shift. It will sometimes be really fertile. It will sometimes feel like it's never going to return. I mean, how many artists have you spoken to? Songwriters who are like, mm-hmm. I've, no, I'll never write another song. They wrote a song. They'll never write another song. I'll never write another book. I'll never write it. Whatever. <laughs> it's an emotional relationship. And so treat it like a relationship and tend to it and offer compassion and grace and attention and intention and really nurture it the way you would nurture a relationship you really care about. Because I think there's a beautiful book called The War of Art, Stephen Pressfield. Mm -hmm. He talks about, you know, the muse rewards the person who shows up every day. Show up for this relationship. You are the reward, my friend. Ah. You are so incredible. (laughs) I love all of our convos. I thank you so much for digging in with me on this. I'm more than happy to anytime I adore you and I'm so happy for this new adventure for you. Oh my word. I literally could talk to Sarah forever, forever, forever grateful for that one. And, you know, I like to think about a couple of key takeaways after a conversation like this, because there's a lot that we unpacked and I call them next supportive action steps because for me, I think these small steps help lead to great change. So here's kind of three things I'm thinking about. Number one is like managing my expectations around dominant stories. You know, Sarah and I talked about how these stories, these negative voices, they don't ever really go away no matter how much fame or success you have. Like none of that really matters. So give them a seat at the table. Explore where they come from. Get curious about them. The second thing that I'm loving about this conversation was the reminder that compassion and joy are truly necessary ingredients for us, not just as we rewrite these dominant stories, but just in life in general and around creativity. Like, don't forget to enjoy the journey, to find compassion for yourself when you screw up. And then lastly, and this is a big takeaway, treat your creativity like a relationship. We're in relationship with our muse to our creativity. So tend to it. Offer your creativity compassion and grace and attention and intention. And and Sarah's advice to young artists is simple and beautiful. Go play, go play, go play. 
do your art. The rest will follow. If you're interested in learning more about Dominant Stories, you can always join me for a workshop. Learn more about this at JessWiener.com or feel free to follow me on social at I'm Jess Wiener on Instagram. I really want to build a community here and I want this to be a community conversation. So I would love to hear from you. If you want to tell us about your dominant stories and how you're rewriting them, uh, you can do it two ways. You can email us at podcast at dominantstories.com or you can leave us a voicemail at 213-259-3033. Next week, we're going to be speaking with writer and psychotherapist Lori Gottlieb. She wrote that incredible best-selling book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, and we're going to do just that. We're going to talk about how changing your dominant stories can actually change your life. Thank you so, so much for tuning in. I'm so grateful. And don't forget to write a review wherever you're listening. It really helps us out a lot. And remember, we are always learning and we are always growing. Dominant Stories with Jess Wiener is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.